0: And we realize that the story of Adam and Eve, which is the story that we looked at last week in Genesis 3, the story of them falling into temptation is very similar to the times that you and I give into temptation. We're enticed, we desire and, and regardless of, of the thought process that went through for the man or the woman in the story there in the garden, we go through some sort of thought process ourselves, and we give into it, and we know what disobedience feels like. Their story is the same is our story and in that story the creature that tempted adam and eve was a serpent the, the bible describes and and what we find there in that story is that even though the the serpent was very smart and very wise and and created this argument that the woman actually fell into and the man then after her the man and the woman still had a choice they still could make any decision that they wanted to and my guess is that all of us at some point in our lives, I know I've, I've done it before and, and I'm sure I will continue to do it, have, have used our imagination to say, what should I switch mics here? Let's do that. I'm, I'm guessing that all of us at some time have, have used our imagination to say, well, what if I could go back to the garden? How would I fare? And I think we can think to ourselves, well, maybe if I was just a little bit stronger, maybe if I were a bit more focused, a bit more intentional, maybe I actually could have resisted the temptation that the man and the woman fell into. Maybe even even Adam themselves, maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe they could have tried a little bit harder. Maybe if they had just a little bit more willpower, they would have been able to resist sin altogether. Now, this idea reminds me of a book, one of my favorite books that I had as a child. In fact, I found it yesterday. I still have it. The book is called Frog and Toad Together by Arnold Lobel. You guys remember this book? Anyone? Okay, we have a few. I found out that I have all four books that were written by this guy. I guess I was a huge fan. They were all writ- written in the 1970s. And they're small small chapters, short stories that have some sort of moral. And why this came to my mind is because there's a story called Cookies in this book. And this is what happens in this, in this book. Frog and Toad, uh, it's, it's about these two characters They're in every one of these stories. And Toad, he bakes some cookies. And he bakes these cookies. The cookies smell good. They taste even better. So he goes to his friend's frog's house and he says, Frog, you have to taste these cookies. These cookies are delicious. Frog takes a bite out of one of these cookies and he says... These are the best cookies I've ever tasted. And so they eat more cookies. And after another page or so of them enjoying these cookies, uh, we find out that there is a problem here. And Toad says, we must stop eating as he eats another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower? Asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all of these cookies, asked Toad? Right, said Frog. In case you don't remember, this is an I Can Read book. And this is one of the books I use to learn how to read. And so they talk about willpower. And Frog comes up with these ideas of needing to strengthen their willpower. So they put the cookies in a box. And then Toad says, well, then we can just open up the box so they take some string and they tie up the box, but then they figure that isn't going to help them either. So they take a ladder and they take this box that now has string on it. They put it up on top of the, of the cabinet. But then Toad still says, well, we can still go up on the ladder, take the box out, untie the string, and then we can eat the cookies. So then this is what Frog does. He takes the cookies and he takes them outside and he shouts in a loud voice, hey, birds, here are cookies and birds come everywhere, and they eat up all the cookies and they fly away. And Toad says sadly, now we have no more cookies to eat, not even one. Yes, says Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. (laughs) You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home now to bake a cake. (laughs) They're tempted to keep eating cookies. So they use willpower. They use a strategy to resist the temptation to eat more cookies. And my question is, the lesson that's illustrated in this book, can we apply this to temptation in our lives? Is it a matter of willpower? If we get strong enough, focused enough, smart enough, can we just withstand sin this way? If Adam and Eve were just a bit stronger, what would have happened in that Genesis story? If you and I were a bit more mature, maybe it may be a bit more focused, if we had more willpower, couldn't we just resist sin? Now, before you get too worried about my teaching source uh, being a, a, quite a primary reader there, there, there is a story in the Bible that somewhat illustrates this same principle. And it comes from the Genesis story once again, and you are probably figuring out that whenever Pastor Brad goes away, I go to my bread and butter text, which generally is the book of Genesis. We looked at Genesis 3 last week. We're going to look at Genesis 4 this week. It's a familiar story. You're going to be tempted. Well, that's maybe the wrong word. You're you're going to want to probably hear this story as you've heard it read many, many times before. But I want you to listen to the story this week with the thought of willpower in your mind. This is Genesis chapter four, beginning in verse two, Adam and Eve, they have had children and and these are their two sons, Abel and Cain. And verse two says, now Abel kept flocks. He was a shepherd. Cain worked the soil. He was a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, we don't really know much about the two offerings that these brothers bring. Uh, what we do know from this story, it looks like the, the author here is not all that concerned with, with giving us specifics about these different offerings. What we know is that Abel brings his best. He brings the fat portions, the most desirable portions of the flocks that he has been taking care of. However, Cain simply brings some of his offerings. And what ends up happening, the the real challenge in the story is we see that regardless of what offerings they brought, God was pleased with what Abel brought. He was displeased with what Cain Cain brought. And this puts Cain in a bad mood, and he pouts about it, and he gets quite upset and, and very angry. Now, Bruce Walkie, he, he wrote a commentary on the book of Genesis, and he suggests that Cain's sin is tokenism, which I think is, is a very great point in, in this story. He says Cain wants to look religious, but really, he's just sort of doing it half-heartedly. This isn't really his, his great intent. He'd rather, instead of giving the best that he has to God, he'd rather depend a bit more on himself, and it's interesting that the point we looked at last week, this understanding of man and woman deciding to be independent from God, now one of their children, at least one, seems to be following in their parents' footsteps. Instead of being dependent on God for, for helping them out with, with whatever, whatever it's, it's tending the ground, they decide, uh, this one son at least, decides that he's not going to do this. But the purpose of looking at the story is not to look at the parenting dynamics here, or even the offering or, or stewardship example, which are all very rich examples in this story. I'm curious about willpower. And so we're going we're to keep reading. This is verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain was angry. He was angry that his offering was not well received by God. I'm guessing that he probably had some sort of anger towards his brother. Uh, he went on and, and killed him. So I'm guessing there, were, there was some sort of emotion that he had against his brother as well. But before Cain does this action, God speaks to him. He prepares him for what's going to happen, and he urges him to master or to rule over sin. He describes, describes sin in a very active way. It's crouching at your door. It's hungry, it's ready, it desires you. When we looked at Genesis 3 last week, we had a a different illustration. Two stories, yesterday's, or last week's and today's, two different images, but actually there's some similarities between the two. Last week, the story was of the serpent. The serpent was crafty, cunning, shrewd, distorted the words of Eve, attacked her arguments directly, and then quickly refutes her reply. In this image, uh, we have the picture that actually God provides. Sin is lying in wait, ready to attack. Now, both of these images are troubling. I'm not a big fan of snakes. You think about a, a snake slithering up to you, then a snake speaking to you. I mean, that's not exactly my picture-perfect scenario. But remember, Eve still had a choice. She could have avoided this snake, right? We look at this image here again. Not all that attractive, sin crouching at the door as if it's some sort of animal about to jump out and attack. But still, is it all that overwhelming? Couldn't Cain just have not gone through that door? Couldn't Eve just have turned around and ignored the serpent? And what God says is that you must rule over it. Sin wants to have you, but you must have dominion over it. Now, the word that God uses, the word word that's translated here in the NIV as rule over, it's the same word that's used by Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37. I don't know if you remember that story. Joseph is the favored younger child. His older brothers are not impressed with him. Joseph has these great dreams of, of him being a ruler, of his brothers bowing down to him, and his brothers scoff at him, and they are quite upset with him, and they say, you think that you're going to... Rule over us. And this word has, has this idea of, of dominion, of reign, of mastering. And for the brothers, this was a ludicrous idea. Joseph's brothers, like, are you kidding me? You're going, you're half our age. You're going to rule over us someday? That was completely unrealistic. But we get the sense in this story from the words of God that this actually was not all that unreasonable. Perhaps Cain could rule over sin. Does this mean then that Cain would have had the ability, the potential to rule over sin? Could he have found a way to avoid sin? I think based on the story, just from what we've read in this, this short passage in the Bible, it seems to make logical sense. It seems like Cain can resist temptation. It doesn't seem like God's unreasonable in this story. But if this is true for Cain's life, is this not also true for our life? If Cain could have resisted sin there, if Eve could have resisted sin in Genesis 3, could not you and I resist sin just as much? Could we not become a little bit stronger? Could we not develop a bit more willpower when God asks us to avoid sin? Well, as we talked about last week, the tragedy of these stories is not only that Adam and Eve sin. It's that we choose to sin as well. And even though we make a choice, we make a bad choice. We sin so often. So why is it so tough to obey? Why don't we just not disobey? Well, the simple truth of the gospel story, the truth of our lives as well, is that it's tough. And sin is a power. Sin is a power that enslaves humanity. It's a power that makes humanity its prisoner. For those of you that have your, your life journals out, your momentum journals, you'll notice on the page opposite of, of the notes page, there's a Mennonite brethren confession of faith. And I want to read out an excerpt of it. It's actually not included here in the momentum journal. This is part of the commentary, the explanation of, of understanding sin and evil. They describe sin as a magnetic field that pulls all creation into its force. And no human attempt, not even following the gift of God's revealed law, can break that force and free those within its grasp. The reason why it's so hard not to disobey, the reason why it's so hard to resist sin, is that we're attracted to it. We're attached to it. Sin actually has power over humanity. It's part of our nature. It actually feels right to us. I spoke with some people after last week's message, and we talked about that idea. The inclinations of our heart, that idea in our society so much, follow your heart, do what feels right to you, that's bad advice. You know what? The inclination of our heart is evil. We have a sin nature. You follow your heart, you'll find out that quite often you'll be disobedient to God. That's why we need to understand the truth of his scriptures. That's why we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so often as we look at our lives, how many times do we say, if only I could go back? We have this idea of, of regret. In the moment of temptation, we, we choose to sin, and then hours later, years later perhaps, we have this regret, and we think, if only I could go back, I would not have said that. I would not have gone there, I would not have done that. Because it seems like almost we we weren't able to. It's like we were enslaved, like we were prisoners like we gave into this power that was bigger than us. And it's the truth of our world, too. I mean, we just listen to some indescribable horrors that are happening on in Tanzania. This is due to a power. It's the power of darkness. There is a force there that's leading people to do wicked, unspeakable things. The dominion of sin has been at work. And it's so strong, it's so strong that in this situation and many other situations we look throughout human history, if you ask people what they were doing, they would actually not even know that they were doing something wrong. I'm sure many of you have heard stories of the Holocaust and, and some of the German sh- soldiers. They, they've been so deceived by the power of darkness that, that these were people that went home and had, had dinner with their families at night and thought nothing of it. They, they were blinded. And we get this understanding that us personally and as a society, sin has this power to completely blind our eyes to what we are doing. There's a power there. And it's so, so difficult to overcome. Now, I was hoping to spend a good amount of time this morning uh, speaking on the nature of evil and what the Bible says about the devil. But uh, sadly, this is going to have to be saved for another morning, perhaps another series. But I want to be clear about one thing. I want to be clear about the fact that it's incredibly dangerous to think that the devil does not have much power. I want to be clear that we understand that, that the devil and the power of darkness does exist. It's become very popular in our society now to think that the devil is just kind of this mischievous character that would be fun to have over with our friends for a party. He's a, he's a little bit, you know, a, a little bit dark, uh, perhaps pushes the limit a little bit, but he's not this source of wickedness. C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote a, a great book called The Screwtape Letters, uh, he says in his book, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think for the most part, we fall into that first error as a society, as a church. I know myself sometimes I can rationalize things and not think about the spiritual component at all. But the power of darkness, the power of sin is real. It is the embodiment of evil. It's a destructive power. And the New Testament is extremely clear about this. Jesus uh, speaks about how the power of the devil has control over humanity. In the book of John, and you can certainly turn there if you have your Bibles, in John chapter 8, there's a story about how the Jews are, are speaking with Jesus, and the Jews tell Jesus that Abraham is their father. And Jesus says to them, no, Abraham's not your father. If Abraham was your father, you would do the things that he did. He's not your father. You're not following after him. And then they say to Jesus, well, the only father that we have is God himself. And this is what Jesus says to them. John chapter 8, verses 42 to 44. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. We get the sense that, that they are blinded by sin, right? And brace yourself for these, these verses. These are some of the strongest in the New Testament. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, and there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We talked about the bad news last week of being the problem. What Jesus says here is is far beyond this problem. Uh, Not only do we have a sin problem, we're attached to the power of sin. He says that the power of sin has completely enslaved us, that this is our nature, that this is what we're used to. Our desire is actually to keep on sinning, to do what we want to do. And the reason why people keep sinning, even when they choose not to, is because sin has completely become second nature to them. And left to our own, left to our own willpower, left to the inclinations of our heart, we will just continue to sin. It continues to have a grip on us. But there's good news. Of course there's good news. And thankfully next week we have Brian Cooper who's going to be speaking on salvation. And after a few weeks of of terrible, terrible news, we get to understand what this good news is so we can truly be freed from the bad news of our lives. The good news is that Jesus has defeated the power of sin. We're incapable of doing this, but Jesus through his death and resurrection has defeated sin. And for those who choose to follow him, for those who choose to commit their lives to him, they can actually be released from this power of darkness. The first step to being released is following after Jesus is accepting that he has defeated sin and then changing our lives. But this is just the first step. And I worry, I think that one of the great dangers that Christians must be aware of and one of the great strategies that the evil one uses is the idea that receiving the grace of God is actually the only step that we need to take. Using your voice to pray a prayer, using your voice to make some sort of verbal commitment will not free you from the power of darkness unless it is combined with effort. Real, genuine Effort, desire for change, praying a prayer to God to release you from the power of sin, and then going on and living your life the way you've always lived your life, you're not going to experience a freedom from the power of darkness. There will not be a transformation that happens. And the crazy thing is is for, for those of us who have made a commitment to Jesus, obedience to Jesus will still not feel natural. We don't get zapped after we make that decision. And all of a sudden, everything that, that God desires for our lives, that doesn't just enter our heart right away. And all of a sudden, we want to say loving things to people, and we want to be generous with our time and, and with our money, and, and all the things in our past are suddenly just washed away. It's still there. The power of darkness is still real. It's a, it's a transformation process for us to be released from that. The power is there, but we have to put forth the effort to be able to realize and experience the power ourselves. This is why the New Testament uses words like transformation and rebirth to illustrate the Christian life. Followers of Christ are switching masters, taking the chains off from the power of darkness and putting our change instead to our new master who has defeated darkness. No longer slaves to sin, as the book of Romans says, but slaves to righteousness. Followers of Jesus. But this desire to be obedient does not come immediately. It does not come with some willpower. It is not willpower alone. It is only through the power of Jesus, but it must take effort. In Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 8, uh, we get a sense from what the author writes there of that this is the exact same thing that Jesus did. Jesus used effort, he used his disciplines, he used strategies in his life to make sure that he could resist the temptations of the evil one. Hebrews five eight says that Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. He developed practices. He prepared himself for temptation. Just as an athlete prepares for a competition and spends countless hours preparing for that situation, so Jesus would use different disciplines, so we are called to use different strategies, to use effort in different ways, to desire to be obedient, so that when temptation comes, we will be ready. We will be ready. Because without the power of Christ, we're still slaves to sin. But without personal effort, we're just kidding ourselves. So what do we do? If the devil prowls around like a lion, waiting to devour someone, how can we be prepared? If he uses deception to distort the truth, how can we make sure that the truth is in us? How can we possibly withstand? How can we overcome or rule over sin? Well, for our application this morning, I'm going to leave you in the, in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to be a text that will be familiar to many of you. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we're in the midst of a battle. It's a spiritual battle. The verse has been read previously this morning. It's, it's against the, the power of, of the, dark, the darkness, the principalities, the spiritual forces of evil. And without the power of Christ, we cannot resist these forces, which is why Paul says we need to prepare ourselves by putting on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we'll be able to stand our ground. Because sin is a power, and the power of sin is stronger than we are. So my question for you is, when is the last time you have prepared yourself for the spiritual battle that you face each and every day? When's the last time you've begun your morning by saying, this is how I am going to attack the enemy when he attacks me with temptation. This is how I will prove myself to stand firm through the power of Christ. My challenge for you today and, and for this week is to clothe yourselves with the full armor of God. Now, each of us have been given tools. We've been given many tools through the scriptures, tools throughout our community here at Jericho Ridge to resist the power of sin. We have resources, but unless we're willing to use them, they're just tools that, that stay there. We have to put forth human effort. We have to, to try And use these tools to resist the evil one through the power of Jesus. Now, we don't know how hard Cain tried on that day. The story doesn't tell us. We don't know if Cain immediately went out and and enticed his brother into the field and ended up murdering him. Uh, Maybe it was a much longer time period and and he battled and he tried not to go through that doorway. We don't know. But you know what we do know? We know how hard we try. We know know how hard you try. When you are tempted, you know, the temptations that trip you up day after day, you know, uh, some of the temptations that you have overcome for some amount of time. And don't you think you would be a little bit better equipped if you got in the habit of putting on the full armor of God? Don't you think you'd stand a better chance against the snares of the evil one? If you relied on the power of God instead of just your own willpower. We're going to close with a prayer this morning and we're going to close with a prayer of putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 and 18. And I want you this week to at least once incorporate this into your week. Maybe it's on your commute to work where you mute the radio and you pray to put these different pieces of armor on your body on your minds as you go into the workplace. Maybe it's something you do with your kids when you, when you tuck them in at night and you pray with them. It's something you can do while you brush your teeth. It's something you can do while you shower. If you run into someone from Jericho Ridge this week at the grocery store at the school, you can ask them, have you put on the full armor of God today? Let's do this right now. Let, let's pray together. I pray for, for this piece of armor to be equipped for, so that you can stand and resist the evil one when he tempts you. Let's pray. Lord God, Your power has defeated the power of darkness. But Lord, we know that the power of darkness still has an effect on us. We're still in the midst of being transformed, God. And I pray that we would be compelled, that we would be inspired to resist the evil one. Not only through our own efforts, God, not just our own efforts, but through your power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that has defeated sin. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that we would put on the belt of truth. That we would buckle the belt of truth around our waist. That we would rely upon your word of truth to defend the lies of the evil one. Lord, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We pray that our heart would desire to be righteous. That we would no longer desire the evil things that the tempter puts in our ways that we would desire to be righteous, that we would hunger and actually thirst for righteousness, that that is what our heart would desire. Lord, we fit our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Instead of running to sin, we pray that our feet would run to righteousness, run to the truth of the gospel story. We pray that we would be ready to run to obedience, Lord that that would be our inclination when we are tempted. Lord, we take up the shield of faith. We use the shield of faith to to ward off the arrows of the enemy and to block the the accusations that will come from the deceiver. Lord, we put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. We'll use the helmet of salvation, God, to assure ourselves that we have peace with you, that you have redeemed us. And that your grace is sufficient for us. And we use the sword of your spirit to attack the evil one. And to poke holes into his assertions against us. Lord, with this armor, God, and through your power, we pray that we will have success against temptation. That when your Holy Spirit speaks to us this week and says, Beware, evil lurks behind that door. Be patient. Be slow to speak. That when, when we hear your voice, prepare us. That we would rely on your power. And then we would stand firm, Lord, as your Apostle Paul says. So we would put on the full armor of God and that we would stand firm. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Have a great afternoon. and We'll see you next week when Brian Cooper is here to speak on salvation.